All right. Well, we've been in Exodus chapter 20. You may want to open there for a few weeks now. And today we'll be looking at verse 16. It's fairly simple. It simply says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. But before we jump in, let's take a few minutes to step back and look at the bigger picture and greater context of verse 16. So why don't you actually turn with me to the left to Genesis chapter 1. And by the way, as we flip through the scriptures today, if I say a a book of the Bible that you're unfamiliar with in the Bible... um, don't feel bad about going to the Google Maps in the front of your Bible called the Table of Contents. It'll help you get to where you're trying to go, and we're all learning. Um, The last thing we want to happen is for you to be flipping through your Bible looking for, I don't know, Hezekiah, and you see the person down the row get it, and then the other person stop flipping, and you go, I don't want to look like an idiot, so I shut my Bible, and then you miss out on something. And that's not an environment that, uh, that this is. This is an environment we're all learning together. And so use the table of contents in the front. If, if I bring up a book or a, a text, um, we want you to see it. All right. In the opening lines, Genesis 1, in the opening lines of the story of God and people and plants and animals and atoms and space and time, everything that we know about, we see nothing. In fact, without context, we don't even really know what God is yet. The name God comes up in that first line, in the beginning, God. But there is no context. Of course, we've maybe been around church or the Bible or those types of things, so we have some ideas. But if you're, if you're entering Genesis chapter 1 with nothing, you don't even know what God is yet. But as we read this story and as it unfolds, we come to verse 26, where we're given one of the first insights to what God is like. Let's read verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they, meaning people, may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move on the ground. Notice the us and the our. One of the first things we're told, the basis for the rest of the stories we call the the scripture, is that God is relational, but not in the way we use the words to define things. Rather, God defines the word. God is the definition, then, of relationship. Relationship is God's presence in and through us, the same relationship holding together all things. So from the first few lines of the story, we see God is the great, if you want to call it, the great relational glue of reality. He's the thing and the person and the something holding it all together. Let's read in verse 27, continuing on. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now pause for a second. When it says he, when God created mankind in his own image, in his image, he created them. We use words like he and she to differentiate because that's what we, we live in, he, she. The, the writers of the scriptures here use he and she to help us understand God is not an unknowable, but a knowable something. You could say he, she, but the writers use he. And the reason I can say that is look what it says next. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Okay, so the next thing God, the next thing we see is God is neither male nor female, but both male and female come from what God is like. So at the very beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 1, we see two things about what God is like. Number one, God is relationship, meaning God is not a Zeus-like God that acts against or interacts against humanity, but the great relational glue of all things. All relationships come out of what God is like. Here we realize God is not a superhero or a one-person angry dictator. Instead, we see unity, we see cooperation, we see love. So in the very beginning, we see this us and 
Let us make us, let us make them. We see that God is a relationship and in God we see unity, cooperation, and love. This is, by the, by the way, why I believe nearly every person on the planet in their most difficult moments of pain cry out for God regardless of their current perception of God, for help, for healing, for wholeness. Because in those moments, we hope with everything we are that there's something out there holding everything together, regardless of of whatever words we have for it. And this is the great connection for us to make, that God always has been and always will be, and that God is pure love, pure unity, pure cooperation. He's everything we wish could be true, and he stepped into time in the person of Jesus into our human experience as the rescuer, or or the Bible uses the word the Messiah, who leads us out of a life of fear and shame and bondage and into the life we always dreamed was possible, into a free life. This is why we follow Jesus as our king. And as Jesus people, we get to enjoy him in our everyday moments and help connect the dots of what people are already experiencing with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love for them. So God is relationship, us and our. The second thing we see is that we're, while, we, while we, male and female, are created in God's image, that God is not bound by masculinity or femininity, but is God. We love to box things in, to explain things with words, and then move on to another topic. And while there are things in life that we can summarize fairly well, there's also moments that we're invited into called wonder. Maybe uh, an example of wonder would be, have you ever been to the zoo and seen a little kid see the animals for the first time. Can you picture their eyes? You know, when they just get so excited and, and they see this thing that's like a hundred times a tiger, like a hundred times their body weight. And it's like, they've seen it in the books, but now they're living in wonder. And their eyes give us a window into what it looks like to live in a place of wonder. And we're invited into that kind of life with God. Not an unknowable God, but an infinitely knowable God. Or in other words, there are not enough words and not enough time to fully explain just how incredible God is. Sometimes you just know because you just know because you just know. You have a moment or an experience or an encounter with God. There's a story in the book of Exodus where a man named Moses asked God what what name he should use to explain what God is like to the people around him. Anyone remember what God's response was? I am. That's it, the most inclusive and big and far-reaching concept that we can imagine and enter into. God says, how do you want, how do you, God, I say, how, uh, Moses says, how do you want me to think of you? How do you want me to tell people? Just tell them I am. This is, this is the God that we get to enjoy. It's been said God is wonderful. He's full of wonder. And I like that. The writers of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians say, God is in all and through all. In other words, God holds all things together, which reminds us God is always here. It's easy to feel like God is close in some moments and far away in others, yet all moments are God moments because God has not left us alone. It's simply our awareness of his presence that changes. And most of those feelings we have of God being distant are just that, feelings. And like waves in the ocean, feelings can be beautiful or they can be chaotic, unstable, and ever-changing. Jesus' message to all of humanity was to wake up to the truest realities all around us, that because of who God is and the receiving of love, that we're connected to God on the deepest level, God's daughters and God's sons. And it's time to look up, getting our eyes off of ourselves, and begin to live in what Jesus called the kingdom of God. 
To stay aware that God is here now, even in this room, even as we, we eat hamburgers later or chips or whatever you, uh, when you drive home, when you're at Costco, when you're, he, God is always here. And to make habit and reminder to each other of God's goodness because it's in those moments that the way we think and live will come into alignment with him. And this is what Jude in his one-page letter was writing about when he said, remain in love. This is how Jesus lived, and in doing so, he led us in on a very different way of thinking about life with God and people and creation than what we often hear. A number of times, Jesus says things like, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. The all-the-time, 24-7 connection, in fact, I think it's up on a slide, the all-the-time, 24-7 connection Jesus had, don't worry about writing this down, that would be chaotic. The -the all-the-time, 24-7 connection Jesus had with his heavenly Father is the same connection we can have now through Holy Spirit. This is a major part of the good news Jesus came to show and tell us about, that we're invited into a back-and-forth relationship with God, one where we get to talk and listen. This means there's more to life with God than simply knowing about God. So what's the difference then between knowing about and actually knowing or experiencing? Well, imagine if I asked you to explain what the color blue is like. In fact, why don't we take just five, ten seconds, try to explain the color blue to the person next to you, but there's one rule. You cannot reference anything that is blue, okay? So imagine the person that you're going to talk to has been blind since birth, never seen anything. All right? Go ahead. You got five seconds, ten seconds. All right. Five seconds is done. Maybe... Some of you are continuing to talk, which means you actually might have a really good answer. Come find me afterwards. I, I have thought about it. I can't figure it out. But um, unless you're an astrophysicist and explain like polarization and diffraction of light, the rest of us search for things around us that are blue. All we can do is use metaphors and pictures of things we'd experienced that are blue. We'd say things like the ocean is blue, the sky is blue, a blueberry is blue. And in the same way, we use words to try and express what God is like. The scriptures use a number of metaphors and pictures to help us think about God. And three of the most common are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three words, or three pictures, both help us have something to hold on to and also allow us to live in a bigger place of wonder towards what God is like. If words could explain God, then words would be God. They'd be able to capture him, and they don't. So there has to be a degree of wonder in our relationship with God. So the difference between knowing about and actually knowing God is the active and participatory relationship we have with God. Active and participatory relationship we have with God. It's there as we interact with God that we find words to help express who he is to us. This is why 
my, uh, my few minutes here of having the microphone is no different than your moments with your coworkers and your family and your friends because as you interact with and you have this active and participatory relationship ongoing with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you gain your own vocabulary to talk to other people in a way that I never could. Or in a way that if I used your words to say the same things, th- the experience is not behind it, therefore the words would kind of not be as powerful. So as you learn what God is like, write it down. As you learn what God is like, do art. As you learn what God is like, create and capture those things to be able to help other people learn what God is like through the perception and the lens that you get to do life with God. On. Catherine, a friend of mine that's taught me a ton about life with God, she uses a really simple illustration to describe our relational position or standing with him. She faces two chairs at one another, explaining how when we think of God in this way, it can feel like we're called into the principal's office. Life becomes all about doing the right thing and being a good person in order to stay in good standing with God. But then she shares what the scriptures say, that it more resembles the fact that there's three chairs that we're in the middle, and that in each chair, God sits, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in that safe place, in the middle, we're surrounded by love. He's our protector, provider, advocate, and deepest friend. He's not against us, and we're not in trouble as he devises a punishment to teach us a lesson. We're not there because of something we did wrong. And we don't have to make a case for why you should listen to us. We're literally in God or in love. And it's here where every situation, where big or small, can be seen and addressed by him. Every part of life finds value, regardless of circumstance or assumption. We're welcomed in on the conversations he's having, and he actually wants us to engage with him. This is intended to be the life framework for every breath and movement or thought and action that we make. Okay, so you did a great job tracking with me uh, through all that. It's been a few minutes, and so a question may be arising in some of your minds. Either Nate's way off track, uh, or B, so why start there? Uh, I'm not off track. So why start there? Why start with these basis that we see in Genesis? Why start with who God is before we get into our text in Exodus? Well, the reason I'd suggest that we want to start there, and the reason I'd suggest we always want to start there, is because love is where we're designed to live from. Remember, God is community, he's relationship, unity, or in other words, love. And we're invited into that place with God. Think about a dance. We're invited into the great dance of God. And our text today is yet another interaction between God and humanity where he's showing us what it looks like to live in that love or be aligned with that love or how to take the steps in order for the dance to be everything it's intended to be. With that in mind, let's read the context, the couple of lines before, of our Exodus 20 text today. So why don't you turn to the right to Exodus 19, just a couple words, couple paragraphs before where we're going to land. How are we doing? Okay. One of the things I love about um, this community, I'm already loving about this community, is um, team teaching is is a wonderful thing because some of you are like, this guy's crazy, you know. And others of you will connect so well with someone else on the teaching team. But in team teaching, you have all these different ways of being able to express things, and it covers a wider audience. So I absolutely love that. And um, just know you guys have an incredible leadership team, and Jose and Kenny and the rest of the team, they're, they're the real deal. All right, here we go. 
With all that in mind, let's read the context in Exodus uh, 19 and verse 3 and 4. And as we do, remember that what God says comes from who God is. Kind of like, think of a spring and the water that comes from the spring. So God is inviting us to live in love and gives humanity the ways to do so. Exodus 19 and verse 3 and 4. It'll be up on the screen. Big electronic Bible if you don't have one. Here we go. Then Moses went up to God. This is the context, the thing that's happening right before the 10 words that we're about to get into. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, the people, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you have a pen or you can slide your finger and highlight on your phone, do so on and brought you to myself and brought you to myself. Notice why, context, notice why God is about to give Moses and all the people these 10 words or what we've come to call the 10 commandments to do what he's always been doing, to bring them to himself, into himself. So again, God is inviting these people into living in love. This is what the 10 words are all about. They have to do with heart and our hands. There is no division between spiritual things and natural things. All of life is spiritual. It's all connected. That's why the 10 words, we, we, they could, we could call them practical because the way we live matters. All of life is God life. Every breath, every thought, every moment, every action, all in God. And this is why you can be a program at programmer at Intel or a stay-at-home parent or a student at school or a barista at Insomnia or Starbucks or wherever you are and why it's all valuable and why it all matters because all of life is in God. You're being invited at every moment to grow into awareness of this. So God is basically saying to experience life in me is how I would sum it up. To experience life in me, letting me flow through you, you get to be like me. He, out of who he is, he gives words, invitation to be like him. So we say yes to God because it allows us to live in the fullness of what we're created to enjoy, living in love. Now we're ready for our Exodus text. Look down at Exodus 20 and verse 16. God, I'll give you a little preface statement before we read it. God, being love itself, uses the next words to communicate what he's like and how to live in perfect unity and relationship with him and others. It says this, Exodus 20 and verse 16, and it's our text today in our series. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbors or your neighbor. Simple enough, don't lie about the people around you. Well, lies, like everything else, are relational. They exist within two or more connected parties. That, that Nothing exists in its own. Everything is tied together. This is why God addresses lies, because lies do not exist in perfect relationship. In God, there, there are no lies. So grab onto this. To, to think about and believe and to express something is, that is not true over someone else is to actually reject love for yourself and them in that moment. To say no to love is to assume there's a better way to interact with that person. And so at any, any given moment, we're giving our attention or delight to something or someone. And even now, your mind may be tracking with what I'm saying, uh, or it may be thinking about the hamburgers and vegetarian chips that we're going to have after this, which is totally fine. But notice when we give our attention to things that are not true, lies, we're actually blocking the flow of the love of God through us. God will not force himself on us. He lets us choose what we think about and what we express. 
I think this is one of the reasons why he gave humanity these 10 words. So we'll have a practical path of how to live a life that offers the opportunity to enjoy the ongoing life in Jesus or in love. So one thing before we move on, your placement in God does not change, but your situation will. So even in the moments where you delight in a lie, then express that lie. You think about it and then you say it. You're actually still in God. You do not get removed from his presence. You don't get pulled out from this center chair, if you want to say it that way, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're in love, and you lie. You don't get pulled out until you repent and then you get back in. Uh, the entire time, you're safe and you're secure and you're loved. And here's what I mean for all, uh, for all of us that are like, where's that in the Bible? Okay, Luke 15. There's three stories in Luke 15 that Jesus gives, one of which is about a son. Now, some of you, and a father, a father with two sons, really, Jesus tells a story in Luke 15 about a father and two sons. Some of you may know it, and others it may be totally new. And if you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to go check it out. It's a really good one. And just make a note, Luke 15. It's pretty short. Well, as the story goes, one of the sons rejects his father's way to live and chooses to live a different way, his own way. He demands the life savings his dad has been setting aside for him since the, for the day when his dad dies which would basically be like like saying, Dad, I want out of the family. No more respecting your way of doing things. I quit. I want to do life on my own from now on. Give me the password for our bank account. I'm out of here. Amazingly, the father says, okay. He gives him the money. The son leaves. And side note, while this story is about two sons, it's also about a father. Jesus is telling the story to help people get what God is like, his heavenly father. And notice the father lets the son walk away, knowing the pain it'll cause him. Our heavenly father knows and lets us choose to enjoy or reject him because he is aware that only when we choose are we actually able to enjoy love. So, after way too many bar tabs and party bills, and I'm thinking, I was thinking like, what's a, they didn't have Uber back then, so I was thinking camel, probably camel ride homes or something. So after way too many bar tabs, party bills, and camel ride homes, we'll say it that way, the son runs out of money and wakes up to the fact that his father's way really was the best way. But here's what I want us to recognize. Even though the son experienced the excitement, there is excitement, but soon to be followed by the pain and consequence of what it was like to delight in a lie and then act on him that his way was better than his father's, he was always a son. It didn't change. His situation changed, yeah, but his position as a son didn't. God's in a good mood, and we're his children, and he's patient with us. So these words, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, they're not a test, but a how-to, but this is maybe how I'd say it, but a how-to tutorial on enjoying life with the Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Each week, we've been, um, we've been asking five questions. Some of you may have been thinking, when's he going to get to the questions? We're going to just walk through these questions quickly and wrap up. So here we go. Number one, what am I supposed to learn? Exodus um, 20 and verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What am I supposed to learn? Well, the reason we moved from who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect relationship, love, unity, and our place in God as his, as his children, then to God giving humanity a path to live and how to remain in love in our everyday thoughts and practices, and then onto how lies kind of act as a shutoff valve for that life with God and each other, is because we all know the pain lies can cause. 
There's not someone in here who hasn't experienced what it feels like when someone lies about him. I I just don't think we need reminding of the pain that it causes. But I do suggest we only need reminding of the goodness and beauty of Jesus and Jesus alone because it's him and him alone that'll set us free from believing and expressing lies. So in asking what we're supposed to learn, I would say simply this. God is inviting us into a life of love a life where we're constantly aware of his love. You could even swap out love for presence because if you're in God, his presence, love, presence, aware of his love and presence for all of humanity, including for the people we want to lie about. Number two, what does this mean for ancient Israel? Two things. For one, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor carries societal or person-to-person effects. All cultures agree someone shouldn't be punished for something they didn't do. That, that's kind of normal. But in a magnified form, to lie about someone could actually cause someone to die. Um, in Israel's form of law at the time, the death penalty was uh, a part of their system. So you could bring a lie against someone else. And if it worked out, if it, if it went through the right systems and, and it, it was seen as the truth, that person could die. So first of all, there was communal um, consequence. But secondly, these words were like a ring On Israel's hand, it was a reminder of what it looked like to be God's daughters and God's sons, to be God's beloved. So you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor also carried communal effects between these people and their God, which is a way to remind us, which by the way reminds us, that sin is both personal, but it's also communal. And um, I wonder if that's why God chose to include against your neighbor, because God knows in everything Everything in life is woven together. It's just psychology 101. So Jesus lived and died to restore it all, all the connections. He's longing for us to receive his love again and again into every single one of those broken places. Lies may be one of them for us. Number three, number one, number two, here we go. Number three, why did God give it? Why did God give this, these words? You shall not give false testimonies against your neighbor. Well, everything finds itself in a rhythm. We breathe in. And then we breathe out. The ocean goes in, and then the ocean comes out. And so too our minds receive, and then we act. And God knew this. So he was telling us plainly that delighting in lies, which means giving our attention or our time, will interrupt the back and forth communication we're intended to enjoy with him and with the people around us. And if God is good, and goodness comes from who he is, then in giving us these words in Exodus, he's revealing his heart for us, which is goodness. He wants us to enjoy him in life. Which moves us on to our fourth, fourth question. What does this law reveal about God's hearts, his heart and ways? Well, God has invited all of humanity together, which includes you and me, to be close and in relationship with him. I think that's probably coming through in this teaching. I've said it about 15 times in different ways already, which is the point. And so remember where we started. God is relationship. God is harmony and love, and he's inviting us into love, and in love is wholeness and healing and joy and peace. And Jesus showed us what, showed us what it's like to live in that 24-7 back-and-forth communication with the Heavenly Father. So you shall not give te- a false testimony against your neighbor. Is God actually blessing us, giving us the ways and patterns and rhythms of a life of love? But so often, like kids who don't yet understand their parents' instructions, we think God's ways are more about don't than about him letting us and leading us into the fullest kind of life. 
And so we push back, and like the son in our Luke 15 story, we often find out the hard way that God could have been trusted the entire time, that his way was the best way the entire time, but that the fact is that God gives us the ability to choose. In doing so, it shows his patience for us. So even now, if you're reminded of your own pushing against God's best, or we might use the word sin, please know he's inviting you to turn your face back towards him and to let yourself be loved by him. He's taking care of those things, and actually you're the one, or, or me too, we're the ones actually holding on to those things where the entire time he's just waiting for us to release them back to him. We've all been hearing his voice since we were young, and as we recognize it's him, and as we release our fears that he's holding something back from us, or that there's something better out there, then our walls and defenses fall to the ground as we return to his embrace. We're going to wrap up here with question five, and it's simply this. What are the implications for this law based on our New Testament situation? This was written a few thousand years ago, and so what does it mean for us today? Well, for that question, we're going to read Colossians in chapter three. So turn to the right. You're going to get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and then there's Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. How many of you have that song stuck in your head from Awanas? Okay. How many of you have no idea what Awanas are? Okay, cool. We're all in this together. Colossians 3. I would sing it, but I... Nope. <laughs> Colossians 3. In, and I'm actually going to read it in the message translation. So if you're on your phone um, and you want to follow along, great. Otherwise, because it's a little bit longer of a section from a, from a letter, we're going to throw it up on the screen. And as I read... I want to encourage you to jot down one thing that stands out to you. This is part of learning what it looks like to hear God's voice, is um, noting things that stand out to you in the scriptures, all right? Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes that you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom-made by the creator with his label on it. I love that. If you don't read the message translation, by the way, it's awesome. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, and discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place. How many of you, that's like the hardest thing in the world? Any firstborns? I'm the only one. Okay. Quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. You ever think about that? How can I hold this against that person if he's forgiven me? Man, that gets me every time. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Jesus Christ or Messiah keep you in tune with each other. Do you hear the, you hear the rhythm of living in love? Keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Um, do you notice that when we sing, I know not everyone here loves singing, but do you notice when you sing, if you're actually singing and the words are going through your head and the melody is going through your mind and your heart, it's really difficult to be consumed thinking about something else. You see? It, every piece of truth and reality in all of life is, is written in the scriptures in one form or another. 
Let every detail of your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. We're created for relationship with God and each other, relationship that is helpful and encouraging rather than destructive and damaging. But as nice as that sounds, it's often far from our first response or at least mine. In the case of our text today about saying something that isn't true about someone around us, it's pretty easy to make stuff up in order to feel better about ourselves. So practically, there's two levels here. First, the actions we make or the words we use. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, is the driving force behind those actions. It's the why behind what we say and do. Those things are our thoughts, and our thoughts are really powerful. If you've ever played a sport or worked out at the gym and hit that point of total just like doneness, like I gotta, all it takes is someone to say your name or go and then inside you get that boost and then you can keep going. Have you noticed this? I do CrossFit, it doesn't tell, you can't tell, but I do CrossFit and so often, man, I am, whatever, whether it's a, a front squat or whatever, I'm just in my mind, I'm like, I'm done. I'm just, I would way rather enjoy it some water right now. And then a friend, yeah, go Nate. And then what happens? Boom. Because what we're believing in that moment, what I'm believing in that moment begins to shift. So the question for us in, in today is simply this, what are we believing about ourselves and those around us? Because that's the core that'll cause us to either live in love or go around lying about each other. With that said, I'd like to end by, uh, by reading us a story. And so why don't we clear off our laps and set things under our chair, um, set our phones aside for, for just a minute. And as we do that, may we remember that lying about people around us is far more about a lie we've begun believing than about a do and a don't. And may we continue to learn what it looks like to practice the rhythm of asking our Heavenly Father His thoughts about our neighbors. If we get His thoughts, we'll express His thoughts. So here's the story. And uh, again, I'll probably have you shut your eyes just for distraction's sake. There was a young boy sitting at the school lunch table. And I'm going to try really hard not to lose it every time I lose it. Um, there was a young boy sitting at the school lunch table when a bully walked up and sat down. We're only in the first line, man. This is going to take me a while. When a bully walked up and sat down next to him, the bully said, you're ugly. I don't like you then walked away. The boy began to cry because it hurt a lot. He didn't know how to process what had just happened and began believing what he'd heard. That afternoon, as he got off the bus, his parents could see his deep sadness and hurt and confusion in his eyes, posture and dampered tone. As he walked in the living room with his head low, tears welling up, his parents said, son, come sit up on the sofa with us. So the boy climbed up into his parents' lap, and for a few moments, he was just content with being held, crying, but loved. After some time passed, they lifted his chin, looked into his eyes, and said, Did you know you're the most handsome boy we've ever seen? The way you comb your hair and your eyes. Oh, your eyes, we love your eyes. We love your fingers and your toes and your nose. We're so glad you're our boy. There's nothing in the world that can make us stop loving you. You're becoming everything you're intended to be. And we love you because we love you because we love you. Of course, of course, the boy stayed in those arms for hours. He didn't want to leave. And eventually he fell asleep. The next morning, his parents said it all over again, reminding him how much they love him and what they see when they look at him. 
The boy stood up a little straighter as a tender smile broke across his face. He no longer had anything to prove. He felt full and safe and secure and wanted. The day went on, and now at school, the lunch bell rang, and he sat down to eat. As he sat down to eat, the bully bumped his way past the other kids and forced himself into the seat next to the boy. But this time was different. When the boy started his attack, you're ugly and I don't, the boy interrupted him before he could finish and quoted word for word what his parents had said about him. The bully stood up and left because he realized he no longer had authority or power of control through fear, shame, and guilt because this little boy knew who he was again. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the one where our life has come from. You're the one that breathed into us. And you give us everything we need to live a full life in connection with you and each other in a healthy way, in an enjoyable way, in a full way. And we confess that we've tuned our ear in to listen to the enemy's voice more often than we'd like. And we believe some of that stuff. And because of that, we act a certain way. And we see that you're the best. And so Holy Spirit, for this community and for this moment, would you remind us of your thoughts about us? Even now, would you tell your church what you think of them? In your own way, just on the inside, I want you to, we're gonna take just five, 10 seconds. I want you to ask God, God, what are your thoughts about me? And I want you just to relax. And when the things start coming into your mind and they're too good to be true, that's his voice. Go ahead and take a second and just ask God, what are your thoughts about me?